Hi, and welcome to Knowledge Counts, a podcast of the Canadian Institute of Quantity Surveyors. I'm Wendy Hobbs. Today we're speaking with Neve Necronin about alternative dispute resolution. Neve, what's your background with dispute resolution? I studied uh, construction law and dispute resolution in London. As part of my uh, study, my master's, um, I studied um, domestic and international arbitration and adjudication. So the principles apply to um, the dispute resolution here in Canada, but procedurally they could be different. So we're just going to talk overarching, you know, today what one should do, but the procedure, you might want to look that up yourself if you want to be absolutely positive on it. The other thing is, this is for information only. This is just to open yourself up to the different methods that there could be and the limitations of those methods. If you're ever uncertain about something that's occurring on site, then I suggest you get legal advice um, if you're ever concerned. Um, the contracts and use of um, arbitration and adjudication, all these lovely things, they are all limited by time. And so if you just let time pass while you're thinking whether, you know, you want to do this, that or the other thing, um, you might prevent yourself from bringing a claim and you might actually have been impacted and, and therefore you're, you're without um, any resolution for yourself. What are the advantages of using some form of alternative dispute resolution? The reasons you might want to go to alternative dispute resolution uh, would, number one, be the cost. Number two, um, you might wish to keep the proceedings private. And number three would be schedule. You might want a quicker result. Um, so in terms of so um, alternative dispute resolution, there are several methods by which you can go. The first thing to do is to actually identify and describe the difference between a claim and a dispute. So if you've listened to the last podcast I did with you, I think we discussed this, but it's nice to recap. So our contract will always provide us with methods to um, resolve an issue. So we call that kind of, that would uh, fall under the claim. So it might say that you, you know, submit uh, information within five days or notify the um, other party, or we might... um, um, put this up to senior management level and they'll have a discussion or we might even mediate um, and get in a third party and at that point then we're moving along to um, dis- a dispute it's moved past being just an internal claim and it's moving to a dispute so dispute then we would classify as in getting it in a third party external expert either to advocate for us so like a lawyer or to adjudicate so to um, it, to kind of judge the issue itself For me, I think the handiest way to start out with these is to start with the least involvement by a third party. Um, Because regardless of how, um, whether you're getting a third party involved or not, um, the kind of procedure is the same. So in terms of we talk about what you need or what you're doing, it just gets a greater involvement the more you need a third party. So um, if it's okay, we might start with the negotiation. And the, the trick to remembering all of these types of um, dispute resolution is they all end in Asian. So we have negotiation, mediation, um, adjudication, which we will discuss, that's a term being thrown around a lot, arbitration, litigation, and we will talk about expert determination just for a small piece, and then we have the dispute resolution boards. So, yeah. Um, So negotiation, so that's kind of, with all of these, 
what you need to do is advocate for yourself. And then, um, so with negotiation and mediation, you want to get all your um, information in order and present your case. So you're not necessarily going to a third party like a trier of fact, but you need to impress upon the other party that you have been impacted. Now, even if you don't have information that you can do some sort of analytics with, that doesn't mean you haven't been impacted. So and I think we discussed this in my last podcast, like records are extremely important. So what happens at negotiation? That's very much an in-house level. And you, you might even like your senior representatives might come down and you might decide to go to a hotel just for the simple fact that it, it's not on any party's ground and it gives kind of a level of security to people. But really what you're doing there is advocating for yourself and you're trying to demonstrate that you have been impacted in some way by an independent party's actions, whether it's rain or whether it's because somebody was late with design or whatever, but that you have been impacted and you have to show how you have been impacted and what the quantification of that impact is. So whilst it's nice to have a little anecdote, you will need to have your calculations there and your backup of your calculations. And then it's kind of up to people um, with their own emotional intelligence, like how important is this a hill to die on? And that's something to remember all the time. If this is, if you're 10% through the contract and the project, you know, you still have the ability to gain another 90% revenue. So is this a hill to die on? Is this just emotion? Is this something you can negotiate on? Um, and, and keep those in mind. The next step then is mediation. So again, you need to have all your records and you need to be able to advocate for the situation. Now, what happens here is you are going to get in a third party, but it's not a trier of fact. This is someone who can support you in making a decision, support both parties, and they will separate you and they will support you in terms of um, identifying the seriousness of this issue or, you know, that party says they'll offer this if you can do that or we'll move forward and, you know, you can even ask them to try and give some advice, although a lot of times they won't on their interpretation of things. Well, really, if I were to look at it independently, I could read the contract in both ways. But it's it's more of a, a beneficial calm everybody down and really look at this issue from the outset. Now, once you move past that, then you really are going to formal dispute resolution. Now, I want to talk about arbitration first and then we'll move back to adjudication because the two of them are linked. The positives of arbitration are that it can be private if that is what your contract wanted, contract allowed for and that's what both parties agree to. It is extremely expensive. Now it's more expensive than litigation. You end up having to pay for quite a lot, not just where you guys are meeting, but you're paying for the trier of fact. So the trier of fact is, you know, what we would call the arbitrator or the judge or the panel. And a lot of this comes from ego. You know, we, we're we going to arbitration and we're going to get the best arbitrators and they have 40 years experience. And, you know, my arbitrator is going to have 50 years experience. So sometimes both parties will, will nominate one and then the two people will nominate a third or it can be written in your contract um, or whatever. And with those, then you'll end up with um, expert testifiers. So when I say expert testifiers, I mean, you know, when you're watching maybe an episode of Law and Order or one of those crime shows and there might be a blood spatter expert, that person is there to help the trier of fact understand what occurred, you know. From my experience, the gun was fired from here because I can see, you know, all of the information kind of presented to me and all my knowledge. And we as independent experts, that's what I do as well. We will look through all the data and then we will say, in my 
expertise, you know, this per party delayed this party, but this party, their design wasn't complete or whatever. So those independent experts have no obligation to the party that hires them. So you can see now how the cost is going up and going up. And then there will be a panel of lawyers and they're not cheap either. And it will be quite difficult to get all of these people, including your three arbitrators and maybe the people who are going to testify just as fact witnesses to arrange a time that they can all meet together in the one location. So you need to be committed to arbitration if you want to go there. Now, I'm going to veer off course for a second. I studied in London and most of my study was international arbitration. And I think it's really important that we hit on this. Um, you might just as you might be successful and if you're a hundred percent successful that would be the oddest thing that could occur it's very rare for somebody to say you know you were completely impacted and you tried your best and oh isn't it dreadful how they treated you that very rarely happens and that's just the way life is because you would have to have a full set of records and if you had a full set of records you probably wouldn't get past mediation to begin with because you would be able to advocate for yourself so um if you are in um, an international arbitration, so that means that the head office of your opposition party is not in the same country as you, um, then you might arbitrate here, depending on the rules you've chosen. You might arbitrate, your seat could be, you know, wherever, where the project is, and you might win, and that's fantastic. And then to try and get the money out of them is going to be the problem now, because they're just going to go home to their home country. So you're going to have to go to a court. So the courts do get involved in arbitration. They get involved if there's an issue of law only, if there's an issue um, with getting uh, costs paid out, not costs paid out, but um, getting the award paid out. And if there's an issue with your arbitrator in terms of if he was biased or he fell asleep or he went off and used his own knowledge. And can you just imagine now, how long is the clock now? Are we at five years now? Are we at two years from when you, you know, went in to speak to that fancy lawyer? Their costs are really increasing. So in order for you then to get awarded um, your costs, um, you would have to go to the, to the court in the head office of your opposition and you would have to get that award recognised in order for you to get it enforced. And to do that, that uh, opposition party's country would have to be a signatory of the New York Convention. Now for us, for most of us, in we call it the Western world in inverted commas, we are, so it's okay. But are you that committed to arbitration? You'd really want to have lost a bajillion dollars. I know that's not a real um, amount of money, but you really would have to l have lost that to go forward with this. So uh, a bit of advice on this before I, I continue. If you start to lose money, start to collect your records uh, like crazy so you can avoid this and so that you can start um, advocating for yourself with some documentation at, at mediation level and at negotiation level. So that is one of the issues with arbitration. Now we're going to jump back to adjudication. This is something that, pe that the word is kind of being thrown around a lot. So if you're coming from the UK or you studied a bit in the UK or even in Ireland, adjudication has come in there. And it's now in Ontario and coming in in part as part of the new Ontario Lean Act. So this is great and also it has its issues too. So adjudication is like mini arbitration. So where arbitration is, we have issues on this project 
and they are all in some way related. I'm claiming against you for delay and you're claiming set off against me for something else. And basically it's all to do with the project. For adjudication, we're only going to adjudicate one issue. So you can adjudicate a second issue, but it has to be so closely related to the first issue that it is impossible to adjudicate one issue without the other. So you can't just go and dump a load of boxes at the adjudicator's office and say, best of luck. The second thing is, is the turnaround time, and correct me if I'm wrong, for Ontario it's 30 days. Now in the UK it's 28 days. So no matter what happens, the answer has to come back. As far as I'm aware, um, the adjudicator can ask for an extension of up to 14 days, but really you have a, you, you're going to get a very quick answer, which leads me to one of the issues. Adjudication is you want the quick answer, which may not be the right answer. And so the problem with that is if you don't present your records correctly and in some respects you are actually presenting your own case, you're advocating for yourself, you've written a little document, you've included all your costs, all your backup, it, you'd want to be a fool not to be able to read it properly and follow it. If you don't present it that way and the adjudicator is under time constraints and gets things mixed up and they award to the incorrect party, that is it, you cannot challenge it. And there is a famous case, and I wish I'd looked this up, and it's Balfour Beatty Rail I'm, and Atkins, I'm nearly certain, where it was awarded to the wrong par party. And so because people thought, well, if I, if I give them so much information, I'm going to bamboozle the adjudicator and they'll just go 50-50 or something, that doesn't happen. So adjudication is fantastic in terms of keeping the project moving. You know, none of us want to fall off this. This isn't going to be some sort of breach of contract where I walk off site. We both just want this put behind us and we've both been impacted in some way. So somebody please adjudicate it and we can keep going. So it is fantastic, but it is best placed for smaller items. So they used to say in the UK it was best placed for items under two million uh, pounds sterling. Then it increased that it was it was good for items up to 10 million. And I think now people adjudicate on huge items. But remember, mistakes can be made and, you know, people are only human. Um, so that's adjudication. Um, we're going to wander into expert determination first before we go to litigation. There is a problem with expert determination and it's not used very often now, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have a chat about it. When we talk about adjudication, arbitration, litigation, and that kind of thing, where it's it's formal, um, there are um, there are methods by which you can challenge these awards. Um, they are limited, as I say. The courts do get involved, but it's only, you know, if somebody fell asleep, or they were hugely biased, or they went off and maybe did their own knowledge and didn't present it to both parties, and there was kind of some issue there that there um, there was an issue with fairness. Or sometimes it can be with an issue with the law. Or if they decide that they um, are leaving a part of the question for another third party to arbitrate. That's where you could say, you know, come on, this, this isn't fair. This is not reasonable. We've not been given our chance to be heard. Um, so the courts get involved. It's limited, but the courts get involved. When you go to expert determination, this is a contract. You've signed a contract for this person to tell you what the answer is. And so that's a private thing. Me signing a contract with you, it's completely private. So if that person makes a mistake, you really have no, no method by which to get the legal system involved because you signed up to this. Remember, when we sign a contract with um, an owner or you know contractor or whatever, a construction contract, 
it's embedded within our contract how we will deal with um, with issues and with disputes. It's embedded in that that we are going to use some sort of system. And we have common law as well to support us with this. With this expert determination, we don't. So move away from that. It, like I said, it's not used very often anymore. And it's just not something you want to get into because there's too many variables. OK, moving on to litigation. Litigation, similar to arbitration. Um, we have a trier of fact. Usually, it's one party here. Um, and then we are going to have people who are going to advocate for us, like our lawyers. We're going to have our independent experts. So in inverted commas, our forensic experts, like our blood spatter experts. And uh, we're going to have um, fact witnesses. So these will be people from maybe the site or from the project that are going to support us in you know, how things occur. Um, one thing I left out with arbitration, but it, it comes into form here with arbitration and litigation, is like, how do we get the records? The two ways that we, requ um, we request information in both arbitration and litigation is discovery and disclosure. And that is pretty much down to the jurisdiction you're living in. So in the UK, it's very much um, disclosure. You know, documents would be requested and from one party to the other. And, uh, you know, you would submit whatever documents you have. And as you move towards the US, that's more litigious, you'd be looking more at um, discovery. So that's where somebody might just go in and take your server. Um, then there's also like interviewing people and getting affidavits signed as to, you know, what events occurred. Um, so in terms of that, <clears throat> I just wanted to dive into that, that uh, with your documentation, you have to be extremely cautious. So this is everything from the people on site right the way up to the people in the office. Um, everything you put your, your pen to paper on during the day can be pulled up. Um, so for those of us who were on site, we have our day books and we're doing our calcs and all that kind of stuff. So please don't write in anything aggressive in there that might be, you know, uh, taken the wrong way if it's pulled up um, in proceedings and if you're sending emails you know try not to have them too personal or attacking any member of your own staff or the other the other party um, because that can be pulled out and it you know it really affects your credibility and like I said if you have an issue on site and you don't have records that doesn't mean you weren't impacted it just means it's very hard for you to prove you were impacted now, once you start to diminish your own credibility, then when you come up with this anecdotal answer that you were impacted, you just seem less credible and you seem less professional and that doesn't help your case at all. So um, litigation, so we have our same, we are gathering information the same way. We have our, a similar trier of fact. We have people who are going to advocate for us and all that information. And we're following similar, um, the same court proceedings. But this can take time again. And as well as that, it's public. So an issue with that might be, again, you might have to ask yourself, is this a hill to die on? If there's a lot of work coming online and you might be a specialist in this area, do you want your name associated with this in the event that things go poorly, um, that might be um, a commercial decision that your head, off head office wants to make. Um, but again, when you're coming to writing your contract um, or um, 
negotiating a contract, you might want to decide, you know, which is the best option for you. And most people will put in mediation, arbitration, and litigation. And that's kind of put in in the event that they want to challenge the arbitral award. The last one we're going to look at here is the Dispute Resolution Board, or the uh, Dispute Adjudication Board. And uh, for anybody listening, if you have any jobs going on this, I definitely want this. <laughs> this, to me, seems like one of the best things. Um, but what it's lacking is a lot of quantitative analysis on how good it is because um, using a dispute resolution board, to, it's very hard to compare using one and not using one. So let's go in and talk about what it is. So dispute resolution board is where you have usually three board members who start off in a mega project and they're there for the life cycle of the project. So um, usually one party uh, will hire one and then the, the two nominees will nominate another person. And uh, so they're there for the life cycle of the project. They know what people's uh, temperaments are like. They're very familiar with the contract. They're not all necessarily lawyers. They've just been in the industry a long time. They've seen how things go and they're just very, very much involved in the process. So their uh, um, objective is to make sure the project can continues to be built or continues to be constructed and that at no time are people in, like not engaging or walking off site. So if an issue occurs, um, they will facilitate as if it's a mediation. They can have all of the records and have a discussion. They can also help you understand, you know, how one would interpret the contract. Um, and so they can be extremely successful. So I have some statistics here on um, the use of dispute resolution boards. And uh, according to the Dispute Resolution Board Foundation, 60% of projects that use these boards have no disputes at all. And 98% of projects that use these boards, 98% um, uh, of, of these disputes um, out of the 60%, they don't reach formal dispute resolution afterwards. They're all agreed on site. Um, so the issue with uh, the, using the dispute resolution board, it's just how people foresee um, people's opinion of them. So sometimes uh, one party will nominate um, a, a board member and they will think that that person is there to, to advocate for them. That's not necessarily the case. These are independent experts. So they might have an opinion that doesn't side with your opinion. They're not there to advocate for you. Uh, the other thing is it's really hard to say how useful they are because you have to compare them to not using them at all. And that's not necessarily like like for like, apples for apples um, situation. Um, they do save an awful lot of time and money. So we discussed their arbitration and how difficult it is and what if you have to get the award recognized and enforced and how many years that might take to maybe just taking two or three days out of your schedule to sit down and, and discuss with with this dispute resolution board, you know, what's going on and how I interpret the contract, going home, sleeping on it and negotiating. The only disadvantage then is people just don't really understand the meaning of independent, uh, independent expert, which comes with with everything, um, which comes with, you know, arbitration as well as litigation. Now, when you have a dispute resolution board, you can also have a dispute adjudication board. So remember, we discussed adjudication earlier. It's like arbitration. It's mini arbitration. And you're just going to review one issue, uh, you know, maybe 
10, 2 to $10 million or less. So you can use this board as an adju adjudication board as well. And you can have a discussion with them, ask them all the points of law, you know, put your, your information towards them. And if you guys come to an agreement, well, then you can get them to write up an adjudication award. And that's it, settled, put to bed, never to be seen again. So they are extremely useful, but more so useful on mega projects because you are paying the cost for three full-time equivalents for the duration of that project. And as you can imagine, they'll have so much experience, they're not going to be cheap people. Is there a distinct difference between a dispute resolution board and a dispute arbitration board? So that has to be set out at the outset. So how it works, and there is a difference to it, right? Um, usually when you have a dispute resolution board, and it's this, you, you're going to say something along the lines of... Um, you know, they're going to support us with issues and it'll all be resolved subject to formal um, formal adjudication post-contract completion. So you're basically saying, you know, we'll figure it out between ourselves, but if I'm not happy with it, I'm not going to walk off the job. But when this project is done and dusted, you're not holding my feet to the fire on anything. Okay, so if you want to change that to like a dispute adjudication board where they're adjudicating on smaller items that are um, subject to challenge only on minor points of law and bias, remember, then you're going to want to say that at the start. But it's, I, and you can, uh, I, I think that's a better way of doing it because you really should be locking yourself in. And if you're engaging people who have all this experience and they're more than likely been adjudicators regardless, then you're actually saving yourself money because you could end up in adjudication anyway. So why not just do it in-house, you know, where the tea and coffee is free, you know, and you, you'll get it done quicker. You know, it, it, it seems very, very risk adverse and in some cases nearly sly. You really should start off your construction project and your construction contract with, you know, utmost good faith. So if you're afraid to kind of agree to anything from the beginning, well, that doesn't really spell out an awful lot to me. You know, I honestly think they're not used more because there isn't enough data showing um, the advantages of them. The One of the biggest problems with, um, with uh, commercial management on construction projects is our inability to um, manage the pounds and our excessive ability to manage pennies. So I've my way of of identifying how big a construction project is is if the l it's it, the lesser number of teaspoons they have the bigger number um the bigger monetary value of the construction project like we have this huge issue with oh you can't spend twenty dollars you know getting the guys pizzas or because it's a health and safety day but when it's night out for calgary stampede we can spend thousands of dollars like that's absolutely ridiculous so when we look at look at getting in full-time equivalents for people who are going to help us with disputes we just can't seem to factor in that cost i mean that could be maybe a million dollars for the life cycle of the project. You know, if your project is lasting a few years and it's a pretty big project. But how much money are you going to throw away on lawyers, proceedings, loss of productivity claims, you know, inability to put in formal communications because of force majeure event, all this kind of stuff. It's incredible. I will say, though, if you just have a small project, really they are not going to be as useful for you. What you need on a small project is a re is really good project managers uh, in opposition. Um, so like a 
one for the client, one for, you know, the contractor, whatever. Just really good people with really good emotional intelligence that know not every hill is a hill to die on, you know, and to really be able to look at the other party's case. And the other thing you need, no matter what is going on here, is somebody who can gather all the facts and present their own case. Can you tell us about a project that had a really good success with a dispute resolution board? I wasn't part of the dispute resolution board as I was a young engineer at the time. I I can speak about it because you could probably Google it if you wanted to. I can tell you it was an Olympic-sized project (laughs) in the United Kingdom. Um, And they had many dispute resolution boards. And one of the big things with those kind of projects is that you are very much constricted. You, you like at a certain point in time, there's going to be someone swimming in that pool. So if that pool isn't filled with water, you know, there's going to be a problem. And the same for the highways and the same, you know, for the stadium and getting all of these people to agree. So you, we had in excess of 5000 people working on that site is extremely difficult. And there were many issues Everything from archaeological finds, where the site just has to be shut down, that's a complete force majeure event, um, where the site just has to be shut down, to uh, just a remediation of soil and all the stuff that you could not foresee. And so, you know, the contract might say, well, that's the contractor's issue, and the contractor might say, well, you didn't give me enough borehole information, and I didn't know that this was used as a dumping site or whatever. And these boards were used extensively on that project. So I can't tell you exactly which contractor versus which contractor, but it there was no animosity between any contractor that was there. Um, the project was finished on time, um, and we all got along very well. So that's another thing you might find. When there is an issue on site, if, if you're unable to resolve it, and by resolution I mean if you still feel hard done by by the outcome, then you haven't really resolved the issue because you're not empowered to work better to your your fullest. Um, And so really then you're, you know, you're not doing your job, you're not as productive, you're not all these things, you know. And you can, with one of the contracts in the UK, it's an old contract, um, an IC contract, and Clause 66 in that, um, which is where arbitration came from, stated that... um, the owner and the owner's representative was the initial arbitrator, which seems ridiculous, right? You know, because of course they're going to say, "Well, I'm right and you're wrong." So, um, so we, so with the dispute resolution boards, like even if you weren't successful, at least you understood why you weren't, and so you never felt downhearted, like you'd been trod on, you know. So that that is a a huge success story, and I know that they use them an awful lot in the tunneling projects in um in Europe, like in the Alps and that. A big thanks to Neveni Cronin for speaking with us today about alternative dispute resolution. For Knowledge Counts, I'm Wendy Hobbs.